This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The uh, Canadian Revenue Agency's online services are back up and running this morning after uh, being offline since uh, late Friday. Those services were taken down due to what they called internet vulnerability that was discovered during maintenance. Joining us to talk about this is Daniel Tabak, who is the CEO for Site Intelligence Incorporated, expert on cybersecurity. Consulting includes uh, penetration testing, vulnerability assessments, security audits, and code reviews. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much. It's great to have you on the program today. Hi, Bill. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. What uh, What is exactly when they say Internet vulnerability? What are they talking about there, Daniel? So they, they're not getting into specifics. I'm more than sure some information will come out a little bit uh, this week. But there's a couple different issues that CRA could be dealing with. And this is actually not the first time. CRA had a similar issue, but a couple of years ago, during the heartbleed uh, virus and worm that was out there. But in this particular situation, it could be and has to do with their online filing and their web servers vulnerabilities. So how would they have discovered this? You know, the interesting part is, uh, unfortunately, in many organizations today, uh, even government operations, these vulnerabilities are discovered by accident. Uh, where somebody comes across it. I, I wish I could say that they're extremely robust and there is an alert the moment there is a vulnerability. So there's really two sides to it. Somebody could have just you know, come across this and say, hey, we have an issue here. Or actually through some potential security penetration testing and audits, uh, this vulnerability was exposed and they took the measures to patch it. Uh, I believe I saw during the course of the uh, the weekend, uh, as people were being concerned about this, and I think justifiably so, uh, there was a statement at one point uh, that said that, no, they are not being hacked, don't worry about that. Uh, but, but you're saying that could have been a possibility nonetheless. It could have been a possibility. I, I do have to say the fact that they said, and you know, again, you have to take it uh, with a bit of grain of salt, the fact that they don't have any, uh, any potential breaches and they're taking a precaution, you have to take it for what it is. That could be the, the truth, uh, or it could be that they had a different issue in their hands and they decided to do what I call perimeter lockdown in order to secure the information. Yeah, but to your point, if they had been hacked, would they admit it? <laughs> Probably not. Well, I mean, because we've heard from from some of the corporate espionage that's going on and some of the things that are, are rather questionable now uh, when it comes to cyber attacks. Uh, and, and security experts have pretty much said that, look, they're not going to admit that because they don't want their clientele to think, oh, my gosh, these guys are vulnerable. Uh, and if, and if, the, if, if the private sector is like that, you got to assume that same mindset is being existing with the Canada Revenue Agency, wouldn't you, Daniel? Uh, yes, you know, the good thing is at the government level, unlike private businesses, they have certain compliance that they have to follow and they have, uh, in a way, a pretty deep uh, sense of reporting issues. So they do have to report when, when something happens. I don't know if you recall, but several years ago when the Ministry of Finance was breached by a potential state-sponsored attack, uh, they actually came out and said, hey, we were, you know, somebody has breached our servers and we're doing everything uh, in order to investigate it. So they're, they're pretty good because there's a certain compliance that ties them up. Uh, but, of course, uh, you know, this is what I call the marketing. How vulnerable are they, Daniel? I'm, we're understanding that uh, not only Canada Revenue Agency, but Stats Canada also shut down their website for a while as well. Uh, we're not sure if it was for similar reasons or not. But, but are these people constantly being barraged? Are there always attempts to try to, to breach their security? Absolutely. So, I mean, this type of our government organizations that hold such sensitive data to key Canadians, um, uh, key data of Canadians, they're bombarded on a daily basis. There's literally full-time teams that are sitting there 
and, and, and you know, what I call dealing with vulnerabilities, dealing with patching. Uh, this is an ongoing and ongoing event. I'll give you just an example, you know, to give, put things in perspective. The Pentagon has about close to 58,000 attempts per day for attacks and breaches. Uh, CRA is a little smaller, but I would say it's probably around the thousands per day of different attempts. Who are these people? Uh, these are, you know, I have to say this. So in the old days, uh, you know, it was uh, it was hackers, and you know, hackers got became a little bit of a bad term for anybody that knows how to use a computer better than the average guy. Um, you know, it actually used to be a status symbol. It actually used to be a praise. Today, it's organized crime and state-sponsored, basically unfriendly states to Canada. Uh, that all they're interested in is harvesting information and data. But organized crime has taken a, a real spin over the past four or five years where this is now a very lucrative business for them. Uh, imagine this, you know, you're running a cartel, uh, anything from drugs uh, to, to slavery and selling people and so on. There's a, an opportunity to get shot, kidnapped, you know, and all that fun stuff. Here you're sitting in a potential remote island full of servers and the world is your oyster, and you can make 10 times more without even firing a bullet. So this has become a very lucrative business. What was that story that was young some years ago? Was it a 12-year-old kid or something that actually breached security at the Pentagon and, and was able to crack into that right now? And, and I, were they doing it back in those days, Daniel, just so they can say that they did? So in the old days, it used to be about a status symbol, yeah. right? You, you would have white shadow was here, right? And everybody would praise you in the community, and, and you, would be, you would be known as a, as a good hacker. And that's really where it ended. Then, it went, then organized crime got really smart and said, hey, we can use the smart guys and make some money. So this is not, uh, if you recall during the presidential debates last fall, uh, when they were talking to the uh, then-Trump candidate, uh, Donald Trump, uh, and and he dismissed the, the the stories about hacking, et cetera, and said, you know, it could be some three hundred pound kid in his mom and dad's basement. Uh, that that may be happening, but this is much more sophisticated. It sounds like now. This is definitely sophisticated, and I mean, and this is the reason they're getting more successful, and the volume of breaches are are on the rise is because this is no longer a bunch of kids sitting in a basement. These are professionals. This is professional organized crime. They got lots of money and and there's a, there's actually a return on investment here for their crime. What is that? Do they sell the information? Do they try to use it themselves? What, what if they obtain this stuff if they're successful in 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 accessing this information, Daniel? What do they do with it? So basically, it's always like putting pieces of the puzzle. In one breach, they take all your passwords and username to certain accounts. In another breach, they take your information for your SIN. In another breach, they take your personal information to create a credit card or they apply for mortgages or other financing. In the end of the day, it all leads to financial gain. By accessing somebody's CRA information, just as an example, they can do whatever they want. They can apply for credit. They create an identity. It's basically another virtual person that is sitting there. And the actual identity, let's say John Smith, will never find out until years down the road when something happens and his credit gets denied. And then he does an Equifax or one of those credit searches and really realizes that somebody's been ranking money on his name. That's the problem with this. It's, it's very difficult to catch the people behind it. So there are people listening to this right now, and, and probably I was guilty of this as the other person, thinking, well, they're not going to look into my stuff. Who cares about little old me? They're, they're going after the big guys, you know, the huge corporations and the multi-billionaires. 
But they, they can make a lot of money, I guess, even if they access my information. As you say, they can use that credit information. They can replicate uh, uh, credit cards. Uh, and they may not make a whole lot of money off me, but if they do that and, and 500,000 other people just like me, that's a pretty good day, isn't it? Bill, you just nailed it. It's a volume game, right? In yeah. the old days, the banks were the biggest targets of financial institutions. But over the past five to eight years, we've had a major evolution in the way cyber criminals are actually making their money. And that is, is they're attacking the consumers. They're attacking the everyday person that has, you know, says to himself, hey, I don't have any government secrets here. I don't, I'm not even important. Why would somebody want my information? Well, that's because every person has a certain dollar sign above their head. Let it be $1,000 or let it be $50,000 or 100 but everybody are worth a certain amount of money. Yeah, we had a, a co-worker that I, I've told the story before, but uh, just a couple of years ago, I it was really upset when he ended into his checking account and found out that they'd taken $300. Uh, he was hacked with somebody in Singapore, I think, that actually did it. And he figured, you know, for the sake of 300 bucks, and I figured, okay, yeah, that was you, but how many other people did they, they attack the same day? Absolutely. It's a numbers game. Absolutely. We have literally seen where we, you know, it's something like out of a movie. I don't know if, you know, the, the, when, you, when you watch Spectre, when they come to the remote island, you know, there's a whole warehouse full of computers. I was thinking that same thing as you were talking about this. That was the vision I had in my head. <laughs> While, while our guys are not as good-looking as Daniel Craig, <laughs> we, we, have, we, we have seen those type of infrastructures in Canada, you know, in, in major cities, nowhere remote, where you come into an office and there's five people working and there's rooms full of computers because that's all they need. They need processing power. Yeah, but, the, the, you know, the, the bad guys are just as diabolical as Javier Bardem, so, I mean, we have to be careful of that. <laughs> but, but you're right. I mean, when he, the, the way he was expressing it there, says, you know, do you, want to, do you want to have a market crash over here? I can do that with this button here. Uh, and on and on, I, I can make this government fall. That, that's immense power once you have that information. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's kind of the new, that's the new crime of the century. This is what it's all about. All right, so how do agencies like Canada Revenue and others uh, try to, to defend themselves against this sort of thing? Well, you know, uh, CRA and other agencies in the government today, and I do, I do have to say, I mean, in, in our Canadian government, we, there, there is a proactive approach to security. Uh, there's discussions, uh, lots of awareness. It's always a, 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 a cat and mouse game, unfortunately, right? Because the bad guys come up with something new and we patch it. Then we patch something for the future, and they come up with a new plan. But the way they work with it is there's teams that work around the clock who all they do is patch and vulnerability management, and they continuously monitor the networks and the systems and their security posture, right? So there, I, I do have to say, compared to other countries out there in the world, Canada is actually doing pretty well, uh, but unfortunately, there is no such thing as 100% uh, security. It's just, it's impossible. It's impossible to achieve that state. So, well, Daniel and his crew are, are coming up with ideas to try to defend this. There's somebody else trying to, uh, I, I guess, develop ways to try to get around the things that you just developed the day before. Absolutely. It's literally a cat and mouse uh, chase. Absolutely. So, so Canada revenue seems to be okay like this. I say when there's vulnerability like this, does this happen more than we know? I mean, this, this made news, obviously, because it's tax season right now, and a lot of people yeah. would be in the process of getting their, their, their taxes done and filing them, e-filing them, which I guess an awful lot of Canadians do these days. But, but you know, so the, the timing was, was right for this thing to all of a sudden make front-page news over the weekend. But, but what happens the rest of the time? Does, does this going on in other agencies right now uh, on, on a pretty regular basis? 
So this is happening, Bill, on, on a regular basis. And I mean, it not, you know, not, not to alarm everybody, but this is what I call the new normal, right? It's, uh, this happens on a regular basis, and that's the reason there's teams who sit around the clock who are watching this consistently because there's always something happening. Uh, you know, it used to be a famous saying, you know, what I call uh, Patch Tuesday and, and Freak Out Friday, right? I mean, uh, you find something on a Tuesday and you make sure that nobody is able to expose it by Friday. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process, but this happens every day where new vulnerabilities are being discovered uh, and somebody is always watching or at least, you know, we're, we're hoping watching and updating them as soon as possible. All right, so big agencies like Canada Revenue, Stats Canada, and and, and so many others like that, uh, Daniel, th- those those people hire people, they, they experts, uh, smart folks like you and others, to say you got to help us with this now. What what do we do? What do the the individuals do to try to to defend ourselves against this sort of thing? You know, I always say from a from a consumer perspective and and the average Canadian, one of the most important things is for you to take an ownership and protect your own data. This is critical. We, we have to get out of this uh, a state of mind where we always rely on somebody else protecting our data. Of course, once our data is in somebody's database or information like the government, there's, a, there's, a, there's an expectation of them securing our data. But as an average consumer, average Canadian, we need to be careful how we disclose our data. Watch emails. Watch spoofing. Uh, watch how you give your emails to different organizations. Watch what I call when you use a Wi-Fi network and make sure that it's secure. Make sure that your own computer is secure and up-to-date with antivirus definitions and so on. So it's a little bit of a common sense. It kinda, I always say it takes two to tango. There's a certain part that consumers uh, have to take on their part in protecting their data while it's in their possession. But we have to be a little, a little bit more aware of what's out there. I find too many people today disclose their information a little bit too freely, not understanding that, you know, once you give your information, it's out there somewhere and you don't know who has access to. Right. Yeah, maybe we take too much of a simplistic point of view to this. I mean, I saw that story a week or two ago, uh, Daniel, that, for instance, passwords, which is something as elementary as it can get when it comes to, to security, uh, how su- first of all, how few people actually use them, how few people actually change them. And when they do, it's usually something like 0000 or 1111. I mean, it, so in other words, you're making it easy for these people. Absolutely. And you have to understand, this is, you know, cybersecurity, the analogy I use is just like a physical home security. If you don't have a key on your door and you don't have an alarm and you don't have a dog, those are all various deterrents. The bad guys... If they see that it's easy to get into because your door is unlocked, sure, they're going to try to rob you. But if you have a lock and you have an alarm and you have a nice little pit bull waiting for them there, they're probably going to go to your next door neighbor where the door is unlocked and he has no pets, right? Just as an example. So passwords, I mean, still till today, the top 10 passwords are password 1234 <laughs> or your birthday or 11111, just like you said, or, you know, your pet's name that you're posting pictures all over them on Facebook. So it's very easy to correlate that data into your password. Uh, so that is, that is critical. And I, I'll give you just a little tip for people who want to create a good password. Think of a movie. Think of a favorite part. Think of a hobby. Add a couple numbers. Add a couple characters. And all of a sudden, you got an 8 to 10 complex password 
that cannot be cracked by a brute force attack that can take somebody five minutes. Right? Do they do the same things uh, from a cyber perspective as they do, like, say, physically from that house to the next one, though, Daniel, that, that if it's difficult, if they can't crack it right away, they'll just move on to somebody else? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, if they're going after a big fish, one of those big companies, yeah, they're going to put a lot of effort into this. But, but for somebody you know that that you know lives here over there, just you know, and they've got minimal amounts of money, et cetera, it's not worth their trouble to spend hours and hours trying to crack that code, is it? You got it, Bill. You got it. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. It is a numbers game. So they want easy. They want in. They want quick. They want to get in. They want to grab your info. They want to maybe put uh, a malware on your computer that you, they can hold you hostage, basically ransomware for you to pay them. They want to steal some confidential information so they can use it for a, for, a, for, a, for a financial gain somewhere else. They want something easy, in and out, in and out. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. You know what? If I had a buck for every time I saw somebody that was texting and driving or talking on the cell phone, I'd be a wealthy guy. And uh, the report that came out today indicates that that's exactly what's going on. Provincial police are saying now that distracted driving is the leading cause of road deaths here in Ontario for the fourth year running. 65 people died in collisions last year in which a driver was not paying attention, and that was a contributing factor. Joining us to talk about this is Kerry Schmidt, Sergeant with Media Relations, of course, with our Highway Safety Division with the Ontario Provincial Police. Kerry, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hey, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Uh, I, you know, I wish we could talk under better circumstances. I mean, yeah. the, 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 you know, distracted driving, we've talked about this anecdotally, Carrie, and, and but the, the fact that this is the fourth year in a row that it's been the number one cause of traffic fatalities here, this is, this is beyond troubling. This is a huge concern for us, absolutely. Distracted driving and inattentive driving, it's not only holding your cell phone, but people not paying attention. Obviously, cell phones are one of the biggest causes of these distractions, and, uh, and there's so many things that we want to always be connected to uh, with, our, with our phones, our networks, our social networks, and our friends, and, uh, and there's just that insatiable uh, need to know what's going on, uh, around with our networks all the time. And for those few minutes that you're actually driving, it really is not that important. And people need to understand that their priority needs to be on driving. You can't be doing two things at once. Uh, you can switch back and forth, but the problem is you can't uh, be looking down the road when you're looking down at your phone. And if traffic stops in front of you, now you've got a problem. Which can happen from time to time, especially in some of these, while we're still under winter driving conditions. But you know, the sure. thing is, and, and I, wanna, I want you to get your comment on this, Kerry, because I'm just talking about this anecdotally from the, the witnesses that I've talked to and the people I've seen that are driving while they're texting or driving when they're on their cell phone. There was, a, 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 I think, a mindset at one time that, oh, yeah, that's that, those young, demo, those kids, you know, they, yeah. new drivers. It, people of all ages I see doing it. It, it runs Absolutely. right across the spectrum. Absolutely, and, and maybe not as many young kids. Uh, they know what the rules are. They've it, it's been drilled into them from their uh, uh, driver's ed, and, and uh, hopefully they understand that there's consequences with that. But we still see a, see them on all all sides. But it's the uh, the older adults as well. Everyone who uh, who thinks they need to be connected and always have that uh, connection line open. It doesn't matter if it's your kids, your boss, your work, your employees, or whoever is you're trying to connect with. Uh, that is a huge problem. And the phones do so much more than just text and, and phone. And now they're using them for music and entertainment. They're playing games. They're using them for navigation. And when you 
that phone in your hand at that same time, that's when uh, we certainly get more and, and more issues. And you wonder, when you get stuck in traffic and there's a fender bender on the side of the road, how many times were those fender benders as a result of someone not paying attention and uh, looking down at a phone? Are you surprised that these numbers keep getting as, as large as they have? I mean, you know, when, when the law was passed some years ago, Carrie, there's, I guess, always an expectation that, uh, well, okay, it's going to take a while for people to get used to this. Uh, they Everybody knows the law. I mean, you know, they've talked about, yeah. well, we could post signs and everything. They know what they're doing, don't they? Oh, absolutely they do. It's funny because uh, these phones are, are people's prides and joys. They'll, they'll pay up to $1,000 for uh, the brand-new phones that they want, and yet when they uh, see us, with them using them in their car, it's amazing how fast they'll drop it to the floor, and, and you would never do that <laughs> any time else. So, you know, there's no ignorance to the law, but they just believe that they are capable of doing two things at once. They, they think they're a good driver, and they can multitask, and they can, uh, and it's too important. They want to be able to uh, still uh, check their messages. And very often you can tell just the behavior. You can look at traffic, and you see one car just maybe hanging back a little bit slower. Uh, they're often just, they're just weaving a little bit within their lane. It looks just like an impaired driver or someone who's falling asleep getting tired and uh, and they're uh, they're kind of building in a little buffer already but often that buffer is not enough because again traffic changes someone cuts in front of them uh, and and now they're into the back of a vehicle or into a into a red light through an intersection it's just it's so important that drivers understand the consequences of uh, of dry, of uh, distracted driving so the OPP obviously are concerned about this, as they always have been, and, and, uh, the, it's, and the, you guys do a fabulous job on the roads. As I say, we do a lot of traveling through the province all year round now, and I, I, I love the fact that the OPP are out there, the OPP are out there, and they're doing their thing right now. But this is, this is now the beginning of the OPP annual prov- province-wide distracted driving campaign. How do you approach something like this, Kerry, when you've got an ongoing problem? Well, what we are doing, we're always uh, looking at uh, how we can educate and, and be more uh, more more forward in the in the communities and through media and through education through social media what we're doing we're working hard to educate not just the drivers but also the passengers we want to empower everybody on the road and if you're a passenger in a vehicle and even if you're a, a kid uh, you can you can have a huge amount of influence on the driver so if you see someone driving with a cell phone in their hand looking down tell them that what they're doing is wrong it's illegal and it's unsafe and it's not just themselves they're putting at risk but uh, but uh, you as a passenger as well and and uh, commit to not driving with people who are driving distracted take that phone away from them or are offered to do whatever it is that they think they need to do uh, yourself so that they, they can focus on driving because it just uh, it just takes one second uh, for for something to come up in front of them and and now you're in you're hurt or or uh, in trouble or delayed because of a wreck and uh, it's it's something that we can't be everywhere all the time, and that's why we need uh, everyone to help us with this uh, solution to make it socially unacceptable. You know, we've, we've made huge strides in impaired driving, and you wouldn't get into a vehicle with someone who's drunk, but yet uh, we seem to still uh, allow people to uh, check their phones while they're driving. And, uh, and even if uh, they're mounted in, in a cradle, it still may be legal, but uh, it still could be very uh, distracting for them. So just uh, we, we really want people to focus completely on what the task of driving is and, and put those phones down. Turn the alerts off, turn the ringers off, and uh, for those few minutes when you're driving, wait till you get stopped or get to your destination, then you can check your messages and, uh, and, 
everything will work out in the end the same way. It's really not that important. You know, we had had a conversation with uh, Klaus Wagner from Hamilton Police Services about this a few months ago, uh, Kerry, and uh, and he said if you want to do something, he says not when you're driving, but he said if you have a passenger in the car, tell them to close their eyes for two seconds. Yeah. And see how far you've gone in two seconds. If you drive, even if you're doing 40 or 50 clicks uh, or even 80 on, on some of the, you know, the, the secondary highways here, it's amazing how fast and how, how much distance you actually cover in that period of time. And as you can attest, a lot can change in two seconds. And if you're going three or 400 feet or 500 yards or whatever the case might be, road conditions can change. There can be somebody turn onto the road that you didn't see before that. Uh, yeah. you, you've got to be paying attention. That's all there is to it. Absolutely. Traffic changes so fast, and especially on busy highways. We've all experienced when we're going along at highway speed and also comes to a dead stop, and, and you've got to have your eyes and you've got to have your attention completely on driving. It's, it's amazing how fast it, it changes, and, and it may slow down, slow down for no apparent reason just because of this caterpillar effect where it kind of starts and stops and starts and stops. And people often think that, well, because traffic's moving slower, no, I'll just check my phone because it's, it's uh, nothing will happen now and, and, and it's still a problem. But the thing is, you're driving within probably a car length or less behind the car in front of you, and they stop and they hit the brakes once, and you're going to be right into the back of them. It just takes a, a blink of an eye, and, and you've, got a, you've got an issue there. So, you know, as much as consequences affect your, uh, your driving, you don't want to get a ticket. You know, tickets can go up to $1,000 if you go to a, go before court, if you have a summons. Uh, $490 is the set fine on the side of the road. But uh, really, we're trying to save lives. It's, pr- it's public safety for us, and we want to make sure there's an understanding with everybody that people are losing their lives for something that is absolutely 100% preventable and should not be happening at all. So let's, uh, let's change our driver behavior here and, and, and get to where we're going safely. So we're, we're all being part of that solution for road safety and traffic, uh, traffic movements. If we all focus on the road, our traffic will be moving kind of like what it is today. It actually seems a lot lighter and a lot more uh, free-flowing because uh, traffic volumes are less. But hopefully everyone's also paying attention and and not being distracted because it just takes that one second and all of a sudden now we've got uh, traffic slowdowns or traffic uh, closures because of a serious collision. You know, you used a phrase a second ago, and I think we should remind our listeners about this, Kerry. Distracted driving does not necessarily just mean cell phone usage. Uh, that can be doing any number of things, which is taking your attention off driving. It could be eating. It could be any number of different things. I mean, you've, you, you've really got to focus on, on the fact that you're behind the wheel of a three-ton vehicle here, and, and there's a responsibility with that. Absolutely. And the funny thing is, even this morning, I was out uh, driving, only doing some patrols, and uh, actually, I didn't see any distracted drivers in the few minutes I was driving, but I saw countless of people doing their makeup, uh, eating breakfast, having their coffee, uh, you know, adjusting, uh, like play, doing stuff in their vehicles that uh, you could tell was uh, causing them some distraction. And, and they could be charged for careless driving because of that. And again, that all fits in that same uh, category of distraction and inattention. Those 65 people who died last year didn't think they were going to get killed in, in a road collision because uh, either uh, someone else did something in front of them they couldn't prevent or maybe themselves were uh, involved in an activity that they should not have been. But again, it's so preventable, and it doesn't matter what it is. If it's kids in the car, if it's just adjusting your radios, if it's looking for something in the glove box, or whatever it is that you're doing, that you're uh, you're taking your attention away from the driving, 
that is that's the issue, and that's why we're we're going to continue with this uh, public safety campaign throughout the week. But uh, with heightened education and, and social media and, and media awareness, but yet this is one of those big four uh, issues that we will work on every single uh, day of the year throughout the year. It's not just uh, this week that we're looking for distracted drivers. We're doing it every single day. And, uh, and hopefully with uh, the conversation that we're having now and the discussions that, uh, that your listeners will have with their friends and colleagues around the table or around uh, the cooler, wherever they're, uh, they're having their chats, that uh, we can change behaviors and, and either make people uh, accountable and, and, and have a plan or have a, have a promise to people around you. Even my kids, uh, if they see me doing something that is distracting, they will, they will call me out on it. And I promise to them that I will always you know, stop what I'm doing or if it's important, I will pull over and stop and park and then uh, continue with, uh, with whatever I need to, need it to do. And, and it's one of those things that, that holds me accountable and, and uh, if people can make those uh, kinds of uh, commitments with their loved ones as well, I think we can actually make uh, make the roads a lot safer. You know, I, there's been a, a greater discussion. I, I, your job, is, as, of course, as the OPP, is to simply enforce the laws. You don't make them. But uh, there's even a political discussion that's ongoing right now, but perhaps even ramping this up and, and making distracted driving uh, a criminal code offense. Now, I, I know that you guys don't weigh in on that, although your your bosses, the chiefs of police, may, may well get political about this. But they've done that in some jurisdictions, uh, I, I know, over the U.K. and in Scandinavia. Uh, and and you can lose your car, not just your license, but you can lose your car over there. Uh, so I mean, before they get to that point here in Ontario, it, it's as good an idea as any, and as good a time as any to just say enough is enough. I got to stop doing it. Well, for sure, eh? we have automatic roadside uh, impounds for vehicles that are caught stunt driving. And I know if there was ever an issue with uh, with a roadside uh, impound of a cell phone, you know, I'm sure it would make uh, a grown man cry or anybody cry if they if they lost their phone uh, because uh, their life revolves around it. But it should not be revolving around it when you're driving. And uh, again, you know, back uh, ten years ago or however it is before cell phones became uh, the mainstay of everybody. The uh, the people when you're in your vehicles, you you drive uh, to your office, you drive to school, you drive. Uh, wherever you're going, and when you get get home, or you check your messages, and you deal with it, and nothing is nothing's lost, nothing's uh, out of out of sort. Whereas now, it just seems that we want to be so connected all the time, and even using a Bluetooth. Sure, you're allowed to use a Bluetooth for for conversations while you're driving; it's legal. But again, that takes away some of your cognitive ability to focus on driving and. It's an issue. So we got to have our hands on the wheel. We got to have our eyes on the road, and we certainly need to keep our mind thinking about what we're doing. And uh, a, a conversation on a cell phone through Bluetooth can be very distracting. Still, although it's still legal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Canada should be worried about Russian interference in our elections. This was a, a conversation that uh, former uh, CSIS head Richard Fadden had on the West Block uh, with uh, Global TV's Vashi Capellos over the weekend and uh, suggesting that uh, with all the, well, inferences that uh, the Russians tried to influence the last U.S. election, uh, there seems to be some evidence that they're starting to infiltrate into the Canadian political system as well. Why are they doing this? How are they doing this? And what are the implications? Let's bring John Coloroso into the conversation, Ph.D. professor of anthropology and linguistics and languages and an expert on the people, the conflicts, and history and culture of the Caucasus region of Russia. Uh, John, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. 
Good to be back, Bill. Let me ask you, right off the get-go, uh, for those that, that kind of poo-hoo this and say, oh, come on, this doesn't really go on, uh, we, they tend to forget about the fact that Vladimir Putin used to be the, in the KGB. I mean, this was, this, was his, this was his modus operandi for years, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It's, it's his second nature to, to uh, President Putin. And, um, you know, Bill, a few, a few months ago when I was on, um, you asked me if, if Russia could be doing this, and I expressed disbelief. And I've made a complete 180-degree reversal on this. I think that this is a new form of, of warfare of a sort. And what we're watching is uh, an initial uh, effort uh, against the United States, and, and it was quite successful. So I would uh, think that um, uh, Russia is going to try it again, wherever it feels it needs to uh, have some influence. What turned your ideas around? What, ter- what changed your mindset on this, John? The behavior of Donald Trump. Uh, primarily. I, I think Farid Zagaria, uh, there's been an interview prior to his, his documentary tonight on, on Putin, uh, he made an interesting point. He said that Trump views every nation on earth with skepticism and a bit of hostility, except for one, and that's Russia. And that is really quite damning in my eyes. I think that it's irrational, and, and it's it's as good, a good indicator as you could possibly have that that man has been suborned basically, uh, by Russian interests. So I think that it was successful. I think that they managed to avoid getting Hillary Clinton in, which would have been, I think, very much against their interests. And, uh, well, it worked. So um, why not try it here? Why not try it uh, in other places as well? Um, Because in some way, Russia sees, uh, sort of the way Trump does, sees every nation on Earth as, as being basically against its interests. Um, and feels isolated and, and uh, living in basically a hostile planet. So uh, I don't think anyone's going to be exempt from this kind of effort. Some are suggesting, and since we've, we'll talk about the U.S. situation, then we'll get into the Canadian mm-hmm. element of this in just a couple of seconds, John, mm-hmm. that, that, that the Russian attempt to try to influence that election was actually two-pronged. First of all, it was uh, obviously to try to, to smear the, the reputation of Hillary Clinton uh, with the number of releases and uh, the WikiLeaks things, etc. But the other one, of course, was voter suppression. Uh, it's a different voting system in, in many of the states down in the states, and, and security experts have told us now that it's not that difficult to try to manipulate voting patterns there. Yes, I think that the Americans have to clean their house. Uh, it certainly won't be done under Trump. Uh, probably won't be done under a GOP successor, um, President Pence, I would guess. Um, but it has to be done up there to go forward on the world stage and clean their exemplar of democracy. Um, I think there was a, a, a three-pronged uh, effort. I think there was the sneer of uh, Hillary, and, and unfortunately, FBI Director Comey was a comp- uh, an accomplice in that. It hasn't been called to account on that. But I also think that there was direct financial support, apparently, um, from Russian banks to members of Trump's uh, campaign. Um, and, uh, of course, Trump has many clever uh, uh, businessman will try to keep a certain distance between him and shady dealings. So uh, that's about as far as that trail is going to lead. But I think very clearly this, this is something that has blighted their uh, their election um, and compromised, robbed Trump of any possibility of ever having legitimacy as uh, president. I certainly don't think we should fall into something like this. This would be most unfortunate and uh uh, the uh, uh, difficult situation to, to turn around. It's, it's going to take the Americans a generation to undo this kind of damage. 
Um, I certainly think we should be wary now. We've seen it happen, and uh, we should not be somehow thinking that we're going to be exempt from this. John, why is there no outrage about this? I mean, for the longest time, since about 1945, actually, and, and probably before that, if you want to go back to the relationship between FDR and Stalin, uh, the Russians were the bad guys. Uh, and through the Cold War, they were the bad guys. There's Khrushchev, Brezhnev, go down the list, uh, and, and on and on it goes. Uh, yet they seem to, to be displaying this, this relative indifference right now to the fact that their major power, their major opponent, the bad guy, in other words, probably tried to influence the election. And as a matter of fact, even in Republican circles, there seems to be almost an, an acknowledgement that it happened, but then that shrugging the shoulders and say, yeah, well, what can you do? Uh, yeah, I've noticed that too, and it's disturbing to me. Um, I would say that the, the shrugging the shoulders is sort of like, what can we do? Uh, in the sense that they are, they're baffled. They don't have a ready, uh, a ready uh, reaction in two, in two, on two levels. One is how to actually deal with an incumbent now who's illegitimate. Uh, and two, how to actually prevent uh, further things like this massive WikiLeaks thing of 8,000 documents of the CIA and all that. I went through some of that. Um, and, and there's some real problems in there. I think a lot of that's entirely bogus. So we have to develop standards and uh, for uh, recognizing what's garbage. And uh, people are trying, the news media are trying uh, quickly to try to do this. Uh, and we have to inculcate that in the public and give them a sort of sense of skepticism about a lot of uh, stuff that's coming in. It's a product of our freedom, and uh, the freedom now is obviously being used against us. Um, so it's it's a difficulty that involves conceptual issues as well about about our wonderful internet and all the information that's sloshing around out there. What's Putin's end game here? I, I, I mean, obviously, there's the one element of what having the, the influence in the election uh, is is it's, it, this goes beyond embarrassing the United States at this stage. I mean, is is this to give him free carriage to do whatever he wants? For instance, uh, it, with Ukraine, with Crimea, with a, a number of other initiatives that he may be trying to do over there. No, I don't. Well, that's conceivable, but I think it would be a mistake on Putin's part, and I think he's far too intelligent to commit intelligent to commit such a mistake. I think Putin's goal is one word, respect. And I think that he has shown that if he can't match uh, a Western power, the United States being the preeminent one in terms of high technology weapons or or, uh, financial influence and so forth, that he can still uh, spoil the game. And he has to be treated with respect. And once treated with respect, then he has some prospects of achieving a fair range of Russian, what he considers vital interests. Uh, and I think that uh, this is proving to be more effective than uh, than his military exploits, which I think were, were not very effective at all. So so that's the element as far as the, the U.S. is concerned, and we've seen the impact that we can have. And there are still many, of course, uh, and I'm sure you've seen the stories, John, that are assuming that right now that, that Putin has something on Trump. And this, this is almost a, a, a situation of political blackmail. That, In other words, say nothing, do nothing, don't you dare comment on any things that we're doing, and, and just leave me you know, free to do whatever I want here. Or I, or I will I, expose whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it certainly looks that way. Uh, and with his visit in 2013, uh, uh, 
to uh, the Miss Universe contest, the visit to Moscow, Trump's visit to Moscow. Uh, certainly he would have been monitored, and if there had been any compromising behavior, it would have been documented or recorded. Uh, so I, I think that uh, you're right, Bill. In some ways, perhaps the reticence um, is uh, um, a reflection of, of blackmail against against uh, Trump. Now, the hesitation of the Demo- of the not Demo- of the Republicans may, in fact, reflect also um, uh, an internal strife within that party dealing with an interloper, and basically Trump who uh, is hostile to their long-term interests and their long-term image. And they're trying to figure out exactly what to do about it. Uh, this, these things take time, and they take the kind of juggling and, and sifting out of, of posturing and power plays, people like McCain versus Ryan and so forth, and McConnell. Um, so there may be uh, uh, some hesitancy, but when they've settled their business and decided on what they really want to do, I think any compromising material on Trump will not will not much matter. But apparently there's compromising material on others as well. Sessions, for example, uh, whose tenure is, is, uh, probably will be cut short, um, accusing himself or not. Uh, so, uh, as McCain said, the centipede has a lot of shoes to drop. Yet. <laughs> so, um, I think until the Republican Party has some idea of the degree of damage and how they're going to handle it, they're not going to really move. Um, uh, yeah, I think that there must be dirty movies, something on Trump. And Trump is indiscreet. Trump is, is, is clearly someone without any sense of proportion or, or public um, image. So he, he's probably gone and made a fool of himself. And uh, um, it, will, it will bounce back. It's just an issue of time. I'm always intrigued when I see this. I mean, because oftentimes when you get into the politics, the the, the partisan issues uh, really guide how these people react. And it seems that that's going right now because any any intense investigation into what happened with this uh, possibility of Russian hacking and Russian interference, I, I would imagine some Republicans are going to consider that, well, that's going to destabilize the presidency. And that's that's a Republican in there. He may not be the Republican we like, but it's a Republican nonetheless. But, mm-hmm. but that yeah. that seems to be influencing them at least at this stage now. Mm-hmm. Yes, they have to preserve their interests as a party. They they have now a majority. They have to retain that, and that majority is up for grabs in eighteen, at least in the House of Representatives. And um, uh, they have to uh, tread very carefully. And I, I think that uh, clearly they recognize they have a problem. They have a president who's not only uh, not only lacks legitimacy but lacks actual information value. Nothing he says can be taken with any, any value. Uh, so uh, it's a two-pronged problem with Trump uh, on a daily basis. So um, it's a serious problem that will uh, potentially destroy the Republican Party, even though they seem to be in ascendancy now. I think they understand that, and I think they're, they're, they're doing politics in some way. That's what they do <laughs> to try to keep keep their careers and keep their, their party going. And that's not going to be easy in the coming months. But uh, uh, clearly, I think they're working on that issue. Now, for the Canadian situation, in the comments from uh, Richard Fadden, the former head of CSIS here in Canada, uh, over the weekend, uh, where he was talking about Rus- Russian influence in the Canadian political spectrum. Uh, it's it's a different animal than the, the American system altogether, obviously, because of the party system here. We, our voting system, we don't use electronic voting here in Canada for federal elections anyway. Uh, but they do apparently have the ability to go after personal attacks. I mean, we look at the example of uh, Christia Freeland, of course, uh, the foreign affairs minister, who uh, made some comments and some pretty strong comments about uh, continuing with sanctions against Russia 
And lo and behold, hours after that, stories are released about her ancestors and, and their involvement in, in Nazi sympathies. Yes. I, I think here, with our voting system, the, the chief uh, form of attack would be personal slurs. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up being slurred at some point. <laughs> um, it's, we have to decide. The sense, it's the old biblical saying, the sins of the father visited upon the child. And we have to decide, really, where the line lies in this. Um, I'm sure all of us have ancestors, going back to the past, that reflected past values and past problems. And we should not be held accountable for what Grandpa did. Um, I have roots in Mississippi. I'm sure there must be things that went on back then that were not very pretty by today's standards. But um, um, I, I have nothing over them. Perhaps Miss Freeland did. Uh, but still, what's the relevance? What does it really mean for what they do today, how they feel today? We have to decide these questions. We have to ask ourselves a series of important penetrating issues, questions about our moral positions, what the past means in this, uh, how we view ourselves as a nation. And um, I think uh, one can look at Canada and think it's vulnerable to small country, limited international interests. But I think that can actually be played as a strength and as I've said before, this may be a chance for Canada to take moral lead now that the U.S. can no longer really do that, nor can Britain with its Brexit mess. Um, and I think Ottawa should, should think about that. It's a, it's a good chance for this place to, to play a role on the world stage. Uh, and it's needed. I think someone has to come forward. Uh, Germany certainly has baggage, and that's part of a historical issue. So maybe Germany can't do it. France is always embroiled in scandals. Uh, Canada's clean. Uh, good place to start uh, talking about uh, the moral values of Western civilization and forgiveness and tolerance. Hey, John, if we're going to, uh, forgive my reference to Mad Magazine, but if we're going to get into the, sp <laughs> the spy versus spy thing here, uh, why why are we not targeting the Russians in a similar way, CIA, CSIS, etc., that the Russians are targeting us? Well, my guess is that we probably are, and we haven't seen the results yet, but, uh, of course, their elections are entirely controlled. Um, there's a degree of control in that society that makes disruption a much more difficult prospect. Um, and I think that uh, the the issue of tit-for-tat is always a dangerous game to play because it escalates. Um, and right now it's been interference in an election. Maybe we can, uh, the U.S. can clean house. It's been interference in slandering of Freeland. Maybe we can uh, sort of uh, take that take that off the table. Um, but if we start attacking in return, the next thing maybe they're going to shut down an electric network, uh, something like this. So um, restraint is a good thing in any kind of war. Um, and if this is a kind of war, and it looks like it's a bit of an arms race, um, I think that uh, it would be irresponsible to just strike back blindly and thoroughly against Russia. It could be done, I'm sure. But I'm glad that obviously no one's quite doing it yet. Um, and I hope that no one <laughs> thinks that it can be done without uh, grave risk and, and uh, very serious consequences for both sides. But, I mean, this is a whole different mindset. I mean, you know, I, I can remember as a young kid in the 60s during the, the, the Cold War and You'd hear stories about, you know, my God, you know, they're they're putting missile silos in you know, near Turkey, and and the U.S. Yeah. would contra what happened in Cuba, etc. And, and you thought, oh my God, yeah. this is imminent. Uh, they're not yeah. doing it with missiles anymore. It's, it's these are cyber attacks now. Yeah, that's right. Yes, the the, the problem is that we rely now on uh, all this electronics, all these lines of code 
to control so many dimensions of our economy and our lives that we've made ourselves uh, vulnerable um, to these things. Now, I mean, some of it we have to take with a grain of salt. We think that digital technology can do anything. My TV sitting here could be a secret microphone, even though it's turned off. Well, no, it has to obey the laws of physics. I mean, you have to have a little sense here. There's nothing on that TV that's going to pick up sound and convert it into electronic pulses. It's the sound system that might do that, but not the TV, okay? We have to think a little bit. But right now, by, by sheer by sheer leak magnitude, 8,000 documents, whatnot, it's, it's the sheer bulk of these WikiLeaks uh, things. And these are Russian. This is a Russian channel for sure. Mm-hmm. The sheer bulk of this is designed to overwhelm everybody and cause panic. Um, so I think that we need some people to stand up in Ottawa and give us some some parameters, some limits on how much damage this kind of stuff can really do. And here, I think, again, it's going to be personal slurs and whatnot. And also in the Bible, that he who has not sinned through the first stone. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a dirt in everyone's background, especially if you go back to grandpa or great-grandpa or something like that. So... Um, uh, we have to uh, exert a certain degree of skepticism and forgiveness. Uh, and we sh- this should be part of the public narrative. Uh, I thank you, Bill, for beginning this process. This is something important that should, should be done here. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.